Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Mike Maples, uh, co-founder and general partner at Floodgate, and Alok Vazudev, uh, previously of Benchmark Spe- uh, Spectrum 28, and now an investor and entrepreneur in the crypto space. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Awesome. We were just having a great conversation earlier, Mike, which I want to bring to this, bring to the podcast. How do you sort of see crypto within, you know, you've been investing for decades plus. How do you see crypto in the realm of, of technology? Where does it sit? Why is it so exciting to you? Where are we right now? Yeah. So there's really two threads that I think are kind of interesting. One is just money crypto and kind of a return to sound money. And what does it mean if you have a type of money that's not manipulated by government fiat or controls and you know a Fed setting interest rates and all that kind of stuff? And that's a whole fun rabbit hole to go down. And then there's the other side of it, which I affectionately call tech crypto. And tech crypto kind of looks at it through the lens of computing waves. And so to summarize briefly, computing has gone through different waves where something became valuable, then later became commoditized. So in the mainframe era, computers were expensive. And then the micro era, PCs and client server made microprocessing effectively free. And then value shifted to proprietary software, i.e. Microsoft and Oracle. And then after that, you have the internet, which commoditized software with open source. And then the companies that had proprietary supplies of data at scale became valuable, Facebook, Google, FANG companies. And now my view is that crypto is potentially the next major sort of punctuated equilibrium event where crypto networks could hold the potential to be the next major change event that happens in the tech landscape. And so so I'm actually interested in it from both perspectives. So happy to we could talk about both of them. And I'm sure Alok can go way farther down the rabbit hole than I can. Yeah. Now, to your, we were talking about this earlier. In terms of what's on the table that has a chance to really be the next thing, the chink in the armor is there, right? I think that we see these big internet platform monopolies that have all the data and and we see some of the the early sentiment shifts in terms of people losing trust with them as stewards of that. And crypto, part of what's new is is that trust is baked into the network in a way that's never been guaranteed before. And so when I survey the landscape of what even gives us a chance to upend these things, it's really the only thing. Yeah. And to some degree, for me, it's an existence proof. Uh, in the past, whenever the government or certain thought leaders, quote unquote, say these companies need to be broken up. It's almost always the time when someone's inventing the new thing under the radar screen. And so uh, when I was a kid, my dad was at IBM and the government tried to uh, go after IBM. And as that lawsuit was progressing apace, uh, Microsoft was born. And then, you know, I remember when Microsoft ran you know, they didn't run Netscape out of business, but they certainly gave them a tough time. People were saying, it's over, the desktop's over, the browser's over, the internet's over, Microsoft's won. Unless the government comes in and stops these people, they're just going to run the table and totally dominate. And right around that time, a couple of PhDs were starting Google. And Microsoft was completely flummoxed by Google from day one. I, I get a kick out of sort of people rewriting history saying that the government had something to do with protecting Google because it's just 
couldn't be further from the truth, just like the government didn't protect Microsoft from IBM. And so, you know, whenever, whenever people assume that it, there, there's two narratives that I believe the opposite is true. One is that these monopolies can't be stopped. And then the other is that robots are going to eat all the jobs. I, I believe that both of those narratives are precisely false. Yeah. And so where, where are we on that journey and what will it look like when, when crypto is disrupting one of the, the big incumbents? Well, we're early, but but no, to Mike's point, it's true. I mean, it it's so easy to be reactionary, right? Everyone everyone thinks Facebook is the first monopoly that we've ever seen, and and the joke is like, let's let a tech monopoly last more than a decade before we we try to go bunker busted. Uh, I mean, Standard Oil had a couple had a had a pretty long run before we before there was action. But taken. is there something different about this monopoly and that it's it's free and it's it's the consumers like it and it's good for the consumers? Is there, is there something different here? Or no. Every monopoly, quote unquote, they claim there's something different about. You know, it, with Microsoft, they said it is theoretically impossible for them to lose because they own the desktop and everything happens on the desktop, and so they could bundle anything they want. And you know, you had economists from universities saying that it was theoretically impossible for any company to survive against Microsoft and drawing graphs and charts and you know equilibrium curves and stuff. And the fact of the matter is, everybody tends to look at the world for how it's progressed up to this point. They never imagine a scenario where literally the space and time and physics of what it takes to win change. And because computers improve at an exponential rate and network effects do as well, you get, it's kind of like evolution. Things progress along what seems to be a straightforward path until one day you get this punctuated equilibrium and everything changes and the rules change. You know, you go from the dinosaurs to the mammals to, you know, some other uh, sort of framework. Yeah. One of the thinkers we were just talking about for this episode is George Gilder, who I, Mike, you've been reading a bit of. And I, I've just read a little bit on the internet, but I found fascinating that he sort of rose to prominence as sort of a supply side economist during the Reagan years and uh, has written a lot about how what is it, money is time and growth or economic growth is knowledge. What he's coined the rise of the cryptocosm. Can you unpack some of the ideas as you see? Yep. What I've always appreciated about George is he, even though he's kind of out there sometimes, right? He's very much of a first principles thinker. So in the early days of the microcomputer, I think he coined the term microcosm, and he talked about what were the implications of a world where computing power was free. And then in, in, in another book, he wrote about what he called the telecosm, which was, what would you do if you could assume that communications bandwidth would be free? And you know, if you assume that microprocessors were free, the scarce resource became software. And so Microsoft benefited that. In a world where communications are free, the scarce resource became people who could provide these free services and then aggregate data and monetize it. And so I think it's kind of interesting to ask, okay, in a, in a world where crypto networks are prevalent, what happens when trust becomes a, a primitive, right? An emergent property of, of um, these crypto networks, you know, what, where, where will the value shift in a world that looks like that? And I, I think Alok and I probably have some opinions on that. Uh, let's get into it a little bit. I mean, one critique that people have of of Silicon Valley venture firms, their approach to crypto, is that they assume that it was just like the internet, and they sort of the critique is that they didn't understand money crypto, but they sort of automatically assumed tech crypto. And as of right now, you know, March twenty nineteen, money crypto seems to have more more legs to it. How would you sort of react to that that critique, and where are we right now in tech crypto and moving forward? So I think it's an it's a useful distinction as it relates to order of operations. For as the market matures, if you take a step back, really, it's all internet networks, right? It's all about creating a new architecture for networks. 
And the core difference here is you have a token that strings it all together from an incentive perspective. And the, the superpowers that these networks have is you can have trust and almost a constitution baked in to how it works before you participate. And if you don't want to participate, then you have, you can exit. And the properties of these networks allow you to do different things than we've been able to do before. And of that, with trust and scarcity, gives you money as an application of that. And it's the one that's actually the simplest from an implementation standpoint, because the hard thing to bootstrap is is the belief that this thing can actually retain value. And so I think of it as the first killer app of this stuff. It happens to be that the market is gigantic. And it happens to be that there's a lot of really interesting things to dig into when you think about how a, a money crypto network would compete against another one or what are the defining attributes of one versus another that create relative value. And so I think it's part of the same continuum. And the thing that I think a lot of the, a lot of the VCs that haven't delved into the nuance miss is that the, the elements that create the money crypto networks are also going to be deeply intertwined, intertwined with the networks that create the tech crypto networks as well. And I've been thinking a lot about it through the lens of governance. And so let's imagine we have a future world where crypto networks take off. Where would the new scarcity be? And one way to think about that might be governance. And and when I think about, like, in a lot of ways, crypto networks remind me a lot of countries. So the US has a constitution and it's naturally distrustful of centralized government control and you have checks and balances. And that governance model created a better system with better outcomes than, say, the government of Venezuela, right? And there, there's a reason for that. Like when governance matters because it, it creates an incentive for everyone to be a good actor and it doesn't create incentives for any individual to be a bad actor or at least not as much. And it also doesn't create an ins- a model where a small number of bad actors can destroy the whole thing. I think about this a lot because, you know, my involvement in Twitter back in the early days, and then I see what's happening with Facebook. I think they would have both benefited from having a constitution. So I think now it's like, okay, Alex Jones, do you let him stay on Twitter or not let him stay on Twitter? There's no good answer to that question now, right? Because if there's some set of people who joined that club, believing that Alex Jones belongs to the club, and if I'm Alex Jones, I say, hey, I followed the rules of the club, and you know, there's, you're changing your mind after the fact. And really, to me, what makes Bitcoin powerful is not just the money aspect of it, but it had a great governance model that created trust as an emergent property of, of the network. And so I think that that is differentiated and valuable and unique and rare. And that's why we talk about Bitcoin dominance. And so I think that the future crypto networks that win will be those that have the best governance models. And those who create those governance models will enjoy the same types of advantages in the market that Facebook and Google today do or that Microsoft did back in the day. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question about to what degree can you pre-compute this? All we know is that the things that have worked there's a, a particular philosophy of governance that typically has a strong point of view. And it's clear that there's a correlation between ultimate value capture and, and having a strong stance on it. But there's also the question of does something need to demonstrate value? Does it need to be valuable before the governance is worth something, right? Does it need to earn the right to be governed before we can even get to that level? Or is or, or can governance be front-loaded? 
Yeah. Can governance itself create a network effect because it just attracts more people who feel safer and more prosperous, right, with one model versus the next? And how do you think we should be thinking about governance? Like the governance tokens or projects like Decred? Like what have we learned so far and what are we going to – like what do you expect looking out in the future in terms of the role of governance in in different projects or what wins? One thing that we've seen is what doesn't work is – not having a stance. I think that of the projects that have broken through, there is a deeply opinionated, deeply principled stance behind it. Could be wrong, but what it does is it self-selects into an early group of adopters and enthusiasts, which seems to be a necessary ingredient for anything beyond that. And so to give you an example of one that's recently uh, launched and, and is kind of one of the, the early projects that a lot of people are paying attention to, it's called Grin. And it's a new privacy coin. And the thing that was special about it, in addition to some of the technical properties that are interesting and, and its abilities, it was just principled through and through. And they had a stance on everything from what do they want their, their minor constituency to look like? What do they want their inflation policy to look like? How do they want their launch to be executed? And all of it was a complete thought, deeply principled. And a bunch of people thought they were wrong in a lot of ways. But they've struck a chord in a way that a lot of other projects that launch in a kind of generic way don't. Yeah, the sort of the other thing I've just been thinking a lot about is if you look in the early days of the internet, you would see all these articles that would say the internet doesn't have a business model, right? So like up until Google, people said the only internet company with business model is AOL because they charge you a subscription fee and they mail out all these CDs for free and have them in airports and magazines and everything. And so it's hard to imagine that people thought that now, right? Like you have trillion dollar companies now practically that owe their existence to the internet. And now people even want to put them in check for their monopolistic power. But there was a time I remember uh, reading Upside Magazine when they said, you know, there's no inter- there's no business model for the internet. And I remember seeing Jeff Bezos at, a, at the Agenda Conference saying, stop whining about business models. So now what seems obvious sure wasn't obvious then. And I think this is probably what will happen with crypto networks. People will go from saying it's a hoax, it's a scam, it's no good, it doesn't perform well enough to someday people saying, oh my gosh, these folks who've cracked the code on governance, they need to be reined in because they're too powerful. This is a, one of my favorite hobbies is the New York Times has their entire historical archives. And I just love reading back in the 90s, early 2000s about the internet business models. There, You get some great quotes in there. And there's a, I, I always forget the, which article it was, but it's in some magazine. We could look it up after the show. But it basically, the author said, you know, people think that you're going to read books on the internet. Why would you want to do that? It can't outperform the internet because it's, you know, it's too slow to download the pages. And like, no way are you going to ever be able to listen to look at videos, or much less listen to music. And it was like, all of the stuff he was making fun of that the internet can't do, every single one of those things became like a multi-billion dollar <laughs> public company. Yeah. And so, and, you know, I remember one of the architects on the Minitel system in France saying, you know, that the internet, there's just no way it's not even as good as Minitel. You know, you, there's no way it's ever going to do anything useful like Minitel already does. And we already have a standard in France. And so, you know, you just, people don't, they just underestimate the exponential power of improvement. And once people start to agree on the right answers, how fast it can move. So trying to be a little concrete here, if in the next five years, we're talking about a crypto-related project that has 
disrupted or threatened Facebook in in some way, or maybe, maybe it's longer, maybe it's 10 years, what does that look like? And maybe the second part of that question is, hey, Facebook's doing a lot in crypto right now. They've put some of their, their best people on it. Could they, by chance, disrupt themselves in that way that maybe the maybe the, maybe they, uh, someone else won't disrupt them? Facebook's a hard one to disrupt. You look back and it's kind of like, what are the right at what time is is a previous winner ready for disruption? And I think what you can't do is is kind of go at the king when they're in the midst of flexing, right? So Uber's not going to be taken down. Lyft's not going to be taken down anytime soon. But but maybe you look back to some of the ones that are further up on their S-curve, and then you can think about it. Yeah, and I think the other thing is, usually these companies don't get disrupted in the traditional sense. Like IBM mainframes are still around and they still have the dominant share and Microsoft still has a dominant PC operating system share. I think what really happens is a new thing emerges and the energy and investment goes to the new thing. And so it's not so much a replacement of the old thing. It's it's more of an addition of a new thing. And just all the smart technical people want to go chase it. And, you know, the money wants to go chase it. And, you know, that capitalism has managed to reduce the cost of capital for new ideas by creating these manias over new technology. And then that, that provides the, the, the low cost of capital to build out these massive new changes. And so I think that that's more likely to happen. It wouldn't surprise me if Facebook has some success in crypto. But it'd be kind of like when Microsoft had some success in the early internet with Embrace and Extend. You know, it'll be it'll be an extension of what they do rather than the whole new thing. And so uh, I believe there will be a crypto native massive success story. Uh, and I don't know if that company's in existence yet or not. Look, if you had to make a prediction, what what, what is that going to look like? Is that going to like what new new behavior? Like prediction markets, like things like TCRs. Uh, personal tokens. I mean, what are things that you think, wow, this use case doesn't exist yet or can't exist yet, but in the next five, 10 years is, is going to be mainstream? I think a lot of what's happening in the Ethereum finance world is pretty interesting. Not because it's at scale or not because it doesn't have issue right now, but it's because it's something different and it's something that not a lot of people are thinking about. And it's kind of operating under the cover of general perception that, that crypto is dead. And meanwhile, you look at some of these projects and you look at like performance indicators around the amount of money that's staked to them or the amount of activity to create new markets or collateralize new products. And all that is actually progressing pretty rapidly. And so payments has always been kind of a weak spot for a lot of the US internet monopolies. And there are pro- probably like broader societal reasons for why that, that never took place. And also the money aspect of it happens to be core to what's working in crypto today. So if I were to venture a guest in a, in a very in a very generic way, I think that may be the vein. Yeah. And if you think about it, the, the internet as we know it today wasn't really designed for transactions. It was designed to be a web of connected pages and we kind of grafted transactions onto it. And so there is an argument that says the fundamental architecture of the internet as we know it is unrecoverably insecure in the long run. And that you're going to, you're going to need some type of a replacement, at least, you know, if you still want to browse content, it's great. But if you want to have really robust transactions that are safe from these government sponsored actors that are now trying to hack into all these networks, you're going to, you're going to need a new model that's much more robust and, and transactions that are vital and mission critical are going to need a much more secure substrate than, than we currently have. And so I, I tend to gravitate to that set of ideas uh, so I think that that could be interesting. The other thing I think is interesting is 
right now we have in the Western world a set of governments that are basically being extremely irresponsible with spending and money and how we treat our money. And I, I don't see any way left to their own devices that that can change. And so I just think that, that uh, governments don't get punished when they engage in deficit spending. They don't believe that the public cares from a voting perspective. But the problem with that is that going into debt, it, it, it's like the frog on the hot plate, right? You increase the temperature gradually and it doesn't jump. And then one day it dies because it burns to death on the inside. So I think that deficits are a little bit that way. You, you, you think it's not so bad until it really is, and then it screws up everything. So what I, what I like about money crypto is the possibility now that we, the people as customers of money, can take our money business somewhere else. And that's not good just for American citizens, but it'd be great for people like in Venezuela or Turkey or you know governments where uh, the currency is even more volatile than any cryptocurrency. Uh, the other reason I think it would be good is I think it would be good for our own government. I think that if the government was under pressure to compete with, for my money business, it would it would be forced to be more responsible in its stewardship of money. So I think that the government may not admit it, but I think it's actually in their own interest for us to have a return to sound money. Because I think without that, without a competitor to fiat currency – I don't see any way that these deficits get reined in. I, I I don't see any way that it doesn't get 10 times worse. Do you find yourself agreeing with all or most of the tenets of uh, both for both of you, Austrian economics? Uh, ish. Yeah, I'd say for the most part. For, for the most part, I'm a big fan of free people and free markets and voluntary commerce. You know, I, I, I think it's interesting. We, we talk about how stupid it is for a country to have price controls, you know, like price controls over bananas or or produce or whatever. So what do we have price controls over in the US? Money. And you could argue that it's the most important thing to not have price controls over, right? So interest rates are not set by supply and demand for money. They're set by the Fed and they're set artificially low. What does that encourage? Bad borrowing, bad lending, financial speculation, casino capitalism, you know, IBM's borrowed $100 billion in the last decade just to buy back their own stock. Who does it hurt? It hurts the people who played by the rules. It, it hurts grandma who saved her whole life and is earning money at a lower than what the market rate should be. So the, the people who played by the rules um, are getting punished and the people who are close to the fire hose of money that's spurting out from the Fed end up winning. And so I think that this that our lack of sound money has contributed to wealth inequality way more than most people realize. And if we really wanted to do something about it, I think that that is one of the silent killers of productive incentives for how we allocate our time and our investment and our energy. Yeah, I, I tend to lean the same way as Mike. No coincidence, probably, that we're both Texans. And uh, <laughs> it's the it's the state that, that threatens to hard fork out of the country uh, just about every election cycle. But yeah, it's, just for me, like what's interesting about about Bitcoin and, and some of the other crypto networks that are there is that we've never really run the experiment before. A lot of these economic principles have just kind of been left in books and to theorize. Uh, and now we actually get to see some of them in action. And so it's a, it's at least intellectually depend. It's at least interesting to see how it's going to play out. And it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I don't, I may be misquoting uh, Bology over at uh, Coinbase, but I think he said something to the effect of crypto networks are also letting us apply lean startup thinking to case law. And so it's almost like the the law itself is being hacked. 
And that's, that's that, but that's part of what we want to see, right? We want to see what, what, what should the new laws and governance, governance models be in a world that's characterized by networked trade and network capitalism rather than industrial trade and industrial capitalism. Right. And I remember, Mike, uh, at one point you were thinking about how crypto can sort of change or advance philanthropy in different ways, like commons, maybe, maybe, I don't know if redistribution is, is the right way to think about it, but. Did you uh, is worth getting into those ideas? Or? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and I'm not sure this is right, but but here's here's kind of what the intuition is. So, in right now, we tend to think of companies as given, but in 1850, you didn't have companies that had you didn't have a stock market as we know it. You didn't have shareholders as we know it. You didn't have a board of directors where the CEO reports to the board. You didn't have org charts. You didn't have accounting. You didn't have any of that stuff. And so, what happened was you got the railroad and the steam engine. And then J.P. Morgan, partnering with these entrepreneurs, financed the railroads with a stock market. So nobody in the U.S. had enough money to independently build a transcontinental railroad. But once you had one, you had a bunch of them. And now all of a sudden, you had the steam engine of the railroad. You could mass produce and mass distribute things. Yeah, and it was a, it was a capital formation innovation as much as it was a tech innovation. Exactly, period. exactly. And so what, what I started to think about with crypto networks is – you know, fundamentally, what kind of types of organizations can you have? You can have fiat, which is government controlled and enforced. You can have a capitalist owner where there's a central owner and you use capital markets to allocate capital. And then I got interested in this idea of the commons. There's a, a an economist named Eleanor Ostrom who won the Nobel Prize in economics a few years ago. And she talked about situations where the commons is actually the better, more efficient way for people to be um, spontaneously ordered in commerce and how they worked with each other. And when I started to read her her different set of rules for what makes a good commons, the light bulbs kind of went on in my mind. And I was like, a lot of these could be structured in code in a crypto network. And, you know, the stock market has created close to $30 trillion of, of abundance in the U.S. alone. And so imagine a world now where the commons becomes like a new way to create abundance. These crypto networks become a mechanism to, to incentivize people to produce things that our current capitalist models don't create an incentive for. And so I'm, I get really interested in those things. Like you could not have had a railroad across the country without a stock market. Could not have happened. And so to me, the, the crypto networks – I'm always interested in new ideas that can create abundance and give people new reasons and new routes to money, new incentives to create value where you have positive externalities and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Even having different jobs to do as different participants in a network is something that's pretty different with something like Facebook, right? You have your users and then you have your advertisers and they kind of play different games, but they, they need each other and Facebook intermediates. These networks, you have people that play different roles and they have different incentives, but the beauty of it is it kind of strings together and that's miners that need to make a profit by supporting a network and the token itself needs to be worth something to them. And then users who use it need to have enough belief in the integrity of the underlying infrastructure in order to feel confident that they can actually operate it. And there's a different level of, of incentive as puzzle pieces that are put together. Related to the point you were making about collectives, another business model or kind of organization structure that's kind of hiding in plain sight is co-ops. Yep. 
Jesse Walden uh, at Andreessen Horowitz wrote a really great synthesis of this. And the thing that people don't realize is the scale that some of these co-ops have achieved, uh, like Land of Lakes, the butter company, REI, these things are, are kind of billion dollars in enterprise value, but they're member owned, they're operated with a very strong constitution. Um, and I wonder if that's actually a form of inspiration um, for how some of these things could look. And, and you know, like when you think about it, Waze is kind of like a co-op. Right. I'm giving I'm giving the network data about my car and where I am and wh- how fast I'm traveling. And then the co-op is by contributing that data to the co-op. Uh, I'm able to see the data about all traffic on all the roads. You know, another guy who's smart about this area is uh, Oren Hoffman. But it's kind of like this idea of everybody gives a little to get a lot. You know, there's not as much central planning and control as there is just the network being self-organizing. Yeah. Going deep in money crypto for a second, you know, look, you had the line of, you know, investing in Bitcoin, uh, not that this is investment advice, is like uh, you're only doing leading the Series D. Does it mean in your eyes, Bitcoin is basically one? I mean, where in terms of the money, money use case, where are we right now in terms of? I mean, M1 is a pretty big TAM. But I, I think my, my point there was that whenever you have something that is early on in test curve, it's really easy to think it's going to end up much smaller than it actually will. And so it was more like Bitcoin is still in its early adopter phase. And, and you think it's, you think it's, yeah, it has a lot left in it. And we always underestimate how massive these things can get. Yeah. And, you know, stuff that starts working has a tendency to keep working and keep working really well and much bigger. And that, if that's one lesson I've learned from some of these things, you know, I remember when Lyft launched the service in the summer of 2013, if you told me that by the end of 2018, we'd have a billion rides. I just wouldn't have thought that was even possible, right? I I didn't think there were that many rides available in the whole world, uh, and so so you know these things when they when they start working they have a way of keeping on working. It becomes like a runaway train. Yeah. What, what what's the world in which Bitcoin is the MySpace to use the you know I'm using air quotes versus Bitcoin is you know the the main winner or how do you expect it to play out or how what are the different scenarios in which could, it could play out? Well, I think the. The world is big enough for many things to work at very large scale and become very, very valuable. You can have Google and eBay coexisting side by side and it and it, they're in, along the same trend. So you don't think money is winner take all? I think certain markets have winner take most properties. And, and I think something like a non-sovereign store of wealth, that's something where there tends to be winner take most effects. But I think Bitcoin is hard to program right now. And so... Looking back to what we've seen in the Ethereum world, a lot of what's interesting that's happening is tough to do with the Bitcoin blockchain itself. Not to go too far into the weeds, but what gets really interesting is chain-to-chain interoperability. And now we have Cosmos launched recently, and we have projects that are linking different blockchains together. And this is kind of, uh, I think it's a really interesting moment because now we get to see the soundness of one reserve currency versus another. When Bitcoin can land on Ethereum, what happens? The way I've been thinking about it recently is if you look at the industrial world, it was a material world of atoms. You had atoms as inputs to products, you make widgets, you ship them to people who consume them. And I think that in the in a sort of a network capitalist world, most of the economic activity is going to occur in the world of bits. And I think atoms become almost like gold. Like back in the old days, you could take a dollar bill, you could take it to the Federal Reserve and they'd exchange it for X number of gold bars. But nobody really did that. As long as you trust gold, 
you just you just do all your transacting with dollar bills or or just money in banks. And I think we're heading to a world where you're going to touch an atom as a last resort. And most of the activity is going to happen in the bit economy. And so what does that mean for crypto? I think that every single asset in the world will have a cryptographic key. And that will that will be the way we decide who owns something. That'll be the, the way we decide who trades things. And you know, when you walk up to your house and get into the front door, it'll be the last mile of it touching that front door that lets you in, right? And and it's sort of this world of if you can make it happen in the world of bits, do that first. It's a little bit of a Buckminster Fuller kind of thought, right? He was, um, you know, he used to talk about ephemeralization and. You know, sometimes less of something is a good thing. And I, I think it'll be a better world because we'll consume fewer material things in that world. And so I think that's part of how we get out of the negative externalities and the environment that industrialization's had and th- things like that. So, so like when I think about crypto that's going to win, I think in terms of every asset in the world will be referenced in the cloud. And there's going to be different types of crypto networks that end up emerging as the best ways to do that. And we'll see. We'll see what happens in what order. Yeah. One of my friends, uh, Danny Grant, who's at USV, shared this thesis with me where every time there's a new, there's a platform shift, people want to take, you know, do the things that we were first doing on the old platform and do them on the new one. So in the crypto case, it's gold, uh, decentralize it or, you know, Wall Street and add decentralization or Web 2.0, uh, you know, a decentralized version of it. And that eventually happens, but in the beginning, it's the sort of the new, new things that can only be done using crypto that will take off. Do you push back on that framing? Do you agree with that framing? And uh, regardless, what are the new, new things that will be uniquely enabled that we couldn't foresee right now? No, I, I generally agree with that framing. In fact, what what I say sometimes is that if we think about the most disruptive things that's going to happen, it's often it often comes from leaning into the weirdness. That's going on there. So you look at the elements of crypto, what's totally different, mining, staking, the capital formation events, those kinds of things. It tends to be where where a lot of the sustained innovations actually come from. Well, so there's always this, this kind of TikTok between new use cases that are pioneered and then innovations on the stack and the infrastructure that make the use case better and that enable the next generation of them. An example is CryptoKitties launched on Ethereum and it clogged it up. And that led to this cry for scalability in layer one blockchains, which unleashed a bunch of new teams and activity to try and give better default performance for these things. And then some of those are going to be launching soon. And then I'm sure that'll create another, something will emerge from that that takes advantage of it, but exposes a new problem or something different. Uh, And it's this kind of this cat and mouse thing between what are we using it for and, and what do we need in order to get it better? And so really right now, not to get back to interoperability, it's about using different cryptocurrencies as monetary assets on other chains. I think it's something that is going to be really interesting to follow this year. Because in the, for example, in, in MakerDAO, uh, you can collateralize. MakerDAO is a, is a protocol for essentially decentralized leverage. So I can, I can contribute, I can collateralize a contract and in exchange, I, I get back a different asset um, that gives me some leverage with it. And so right now you can collateralize a MakerDAO CDP, they're called with Ethereum, but soon you'll be able to use multiple assets and different assets to collateralize those contracts. And so when I can put Bitcoin as a collateral into a Maker CDP, 
what happens. And to me, I think I think that's when we're going to unleash a lot of really interesting activity. I'm not sure I know yet what I believe about this. It could be, is there a brand new native new thing? So, so like an example of that in the internet era would have been Google, right? I, I just don't think many people could have envisioned Google because everybody looked at the world through there's desktop computers that are hooked up on the internet and all the software runs on the desktop. And so it's the Wintel stuff. Uh, so that, so it could be, there's just a, an entirely new thing that's crypto native that we haven't even thought about yet. And it was hard to even imagine. The other way I look at it is th- the metaphor I like to use is like digital cameras. So in, in 1993, Apple came out with this camera called the quick take and any professional photographer would have looked at it and said, this is a toy. In fact, nobody who bought it used it for anything useful. It was like 0.3 megapixels and, you know, hardly any colors looked terrible. And, and if you told a, a professional photographer then that someday you're going to have a digital SLR camera, just nobody would have believed that was possible. And, you know, it's kind of interesting the year that Instagram gets bought by Facebook, Kodak declares bankruptcy. And so what what happens with these technologies is they're progressing at an exponentially improving rate while incumbent technologies are progressing at a linear rate. And at first it's very deceptive because exponential improvements still look linear because you're exponentially improving on a small number. But then when it gets kind of this inflection point where it starts to go up very massively, before you know it, it's caught up with the incumbent technology. And by the time it's caught up, it's already exponentially improving beyond. And so, you know, by the time you know, it's too late. And there's a part of me that thinks that crypto networks are likely to have those kinds of properties. And people say they're way too slow. They don't work well enough. They're, you know, they don't perform well enough until they do. And then they'll perform way better and then exponentially way better. My, my guess is that there will be a part of the action where we'll see some of that. I, I agree with that. And, and almost by definition, they have to be looked at as, as broken or bad or stupid in order for them to have the right cover to, to grow into what they can. Even just the scale itself, right? I think Bitcoin is, is probably more widely distributed uh, of a network globally. I, I think that's pretty unprecedented already. And so you get hints at, at what the scale of these things can be. Yeah. And there's some people who believe there will be a, a massive multi-coin world and others who believe that, I don't know, the critique is that the, it's like a lot of gift cards, infinite gift cards. Um, but what do you say to the people who say that leveraging Litecoin, Bitcoin will eventually, uh, sorry, leveraging uh, Lightning, Bitcoin will eventually adopt most, if not all of the use cases that some of these other smart contract protocols are, are pioneering? What do you say to that? So rule number one is don't get involved in religious wars. <laughs> <laughs> I think Lightning is is a great innovation, and and I'm thrilled that people are working on it. I'm thrilled that big companies like Square are starting to embrace it. I think layer two monetization and value capture is still a really unsolved problem, and that's not just Bitcoin specific. I think that's specific to a lot of other chains as well. So, but I think the concept of these highly performant channels and all that, uh, I think it's it's going to be a lever on the space as a whole. But I don't I don't have a stance that one thing is necessarily going to squash everything else. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the interesting thing is there could be a multiplicative world where there's a lot like, you know, back when I used to read newspapers and now I read everything online, but you'd, you'd open the newspaper to the commodities page and it's just like print that you can barely read filling up the pages of these commodities. But that's okay because all the commodities were pegged to the US dollar or whatever the currency was. And so I don't, 
you know, people say, oh my gosh, there's all these crypto networks and cryptocurrencies it's going to be super confusing. And I'm not sure I buy that, right? It may be that these crypto networks are the, 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 the commodities of the bit economy, right? And it's just people just get used to them. They trade in and out of them and it's just not that big of a deal. Yeah. Oh, what I heard about Lightning from series, from series A firms that looked at it was, hey, if Lightning works, I'm just going to, you know, buy a bunch of Bitcoin because Bitcoin will capture the most value, which sort of is a segue into how should venture capitalists think about the crypto space? Because there, there's wide swath of people that believe if Bitcoin's winner take all, there's not that much opportunity or winner take most, there's not that much opportunity for, for venture investment. What's your belief and how have you thought about it from a, from a crypto VC standpoint? Well, so the first question that crypto raised to investors is, and, and this was raised with Bitcoin, is do I want the asset or do I want the company uh, that's building around the asset? The original seminal fat protocols blog post that was published by USV, that was written in reference to, would you rather have had Bitcoin or Coinbase stock at the beginning? And it turned out that you would rather have Bitcoin. And so that was kind of the first piercing of the veil for as venture capitalists, as really kind of long-term investors and patient capital enabling innovation on the time horizon of a decade, what do you want to own? And one thing that I think some venture capitalists have come around on right now is that you actually want the thing, you want the token, you want the asset, and it itself will capture value. I think that the the next best thing that you're seeing is whenever you get the opportunity for proxy exposure to the market by buying equity in a business that's related to crypto, that that's red meat that's on the market, right? Because it, otherwise, it's it's trickier to get exposure. But when you see a custodian, when you see an exchange, when you see something like that, those those deals tend to have a lot of interest in them. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there was some animosity from the Bitcoin crowd towards sort of the again, not to get into religious wars, <laughs> to, towards sort of the Andreessen poly, luck. yeah, <laughs> the Andreessen polychain crowd, and they sort of said, you know, in, in Chris Dixon's uh, "Why Decentralization Matters," he said. This isn't about governments. This is about you know Facebook and third-party platforms and, and decentralizing the internet. And other people say, no, no, it's not about that. It's about you know non-sovereign um, money, uh, decentralized money. And so, how do we reconcile these two views? Are, are they both right? And if yes, what's the intersection between the two, between money, crypto, and tech crypto? So I think they're both right, and it's an order of operations question, and which use cases are more ready than others. Like I said earlier, I think one of the it's a it's incorrect to think that that kind of money crypto and tech crypto will exist very distinctly. I think that the money nature of these things and the fact that these tokens have monetary premiums that are earned by different fundamentals are going to be integral in the new set of fundamentals for the the tech crypto networks. So, is there, so why is there why is there a religious war then? Is it uh, like misguided or is it is there actually a zero sum? Tribes be tribes. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that that if I'm channeling a Bitcoin maximalist, I might say that Bitcoin is such an imperative to succeed that it's literally unethical to invest any ergs of energy in developing a crypto ecosystem that is not Bitcoin. And so, like, if you believe that, you know, you're kind of going to believe that, right? That's that's kind of how it is. But I sort of look at it more like, I, I, you know, we have this saying at Floodgate, tr- seek truth over tribalism. And I, I get I get nervous sometimes that what this is really about is not about money crypto versus tech crypto, but it's about a set of people who have one set of sensibilities about the world, i.e. some of the maximalists. And then you've got Silicon Valley types who are looking for the next platform generational shift. 
And I think in many ways, it is a a little bit of a disliking of the sensibilities of those people more than it is uh, theoretically uh, what's what's the better answer or can we have both answers, right? And it's interesting why that is within sort of uniquely within crypto. Like we don't have that in like esports or VR or – AI, I don't, I don't know. It, it, it seems something unique to the space. Is yeah, that? I mean, why? these these are these are the most reflexive assets on the planet, right? To some degree, this is the frontier of meme warfare, right? I mean, since belief in itself and evangelizing a group of of active believers and holders is a core part of that initial phase of a cryptocurrency's lifetime, it, it makes sense that the propagation of those beliefs and the clash of those beliefs is is where the front lines are. The the joke I make sometimes is if you th- if you look at the top ten on coin market cap and you assume that that's actually a perfectly rational ranking of cryptocurrencies, and you ask the question, what is it? What is the input function that outputs that specific top ten? The only answer I can come up with is it's it's kind of the quality of the cult. If you were to rank them, that gives you roughly the top ten. And so I I think that that the fact where the value comes from initially is is heavily indicative of why there's such kind of violent online uh, clashes of the tribes. Yeah. To your uh, to your uh, Bitcoin maximalism point, Mike, is it sort of like if people who built HTTP or rallying around that were saying there can't be TCIP or there can't be any other standard? It has to be this one because any attention put on that one will take away from this one. Is that- I, I think so. Uh, it, it, you know, people. The one it reminds me a lot of is kind of what Steve Jobs said when he came back to Apple. There were a lot of people in the Apple community who said OpenDoc is better than Olay and ActiveX, and you know they probably were right in some ways, right? Technically, but at, at some point, Jobs is like, you know, we need to get back to the days when we had like the laser printer, and people saw what a laser printer printed, and it looked freaking awesome, and like that's what Apple needs to care about. And to me, in many ways, the, the the crypto network communities need to care about delivering a hit product that rocks people's world. And, you know, right now, I'd say Bitcoin's come the closest to that. And so you'd say, okay, well, Bit- Bitcoin has the upper hand and the advantage in that discussion. But, th- but that doesn't mean there can't be other ones. And that doesn't mean, I think, that when somebody's trying to come up with a new crypto network, I think the right discussion to have is, why is this going to be a hit product? Why are a whole bunch of people going to think this rocks their world, that it delights them in ways they've never been delighted before? And when are we going to see one of those? And when is your thing going to be that? And if it's if you don't have an answer to that question, what are you even doing? What are you building here? Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, um, if we talked a year ago or a year and a half ago, perhaps we would have said, if I asked, what's the thing that's you know holding you know crypto back from from adoption mainstream adoption you might have said scalability and that was around the time of crypto kitties but i don't know if we've seen sort of a hit product since like is it is it less scalability now and more just some you know great user experience or great product experience that that people want or are we hitting those scalability limits yeah i think scalability was a bit of a red herring i think that that it was a it was a window for a bunch of professors to create coins it was a windows for a bunch of uh, it was a window for a bunch of projects that that only relied on technical merit to to get funding and to kind of break through um, but i think it also showcased just how undifferentiated these projects are when you don't take any sort of go to market stance in what you're doing um, and it's funny right like we all ring the alarm bells about cryptocurrencies breaking ethereum but it actually hasn't really broken since uh, I mean, you're going to get that, right? I think like people are are just reactionary to whatever happened last, and but you hope that in the in the Shemtarian waste of what it kicks off, stuff's going to stick eventually. Yeah, and 
if we look 10 years out, 10 to 20 years out, and I'm curious in, in any analogies to the internet, if we look at what types of capital are going to capture the most value, is it going to be the uh, sequoias, benchmarks, floodgates uh, of the world? Is it going to be sort of the more crypto native funds? How, how, how should we be thinking about that? So I, I kind of break up the world into into three categories. There are kind of crypto natives and there are investors and firms that are kind of designing all of their principles around this market. Specifically, uh, there are enlightened VCs. And those are VCs that have quickly realized that they need to break a lot of their rules in order to uh, wrap their heads around this market. Mike is one of the enlightened VCs. And then you have- We'll see, we'll see about that. <laughs> uh, and then you have the, the latter category um, that either are trying to pattern match in, in very naive ways based on other companies and other markets they have exposure to, or uh, the other version is is really kind of wait and see until it becomes more of a threat or, or something that's realer to play in. I obviously have my bias that I think uh, the first two groups are the ones that actually have a chance to do it. Yeah, and it's interesting because when I when I think about investing in a crypto asset or network, I'm not sure I would ever dream of doing it without partnering with a crypto native fund. And and the reason is that there are certain things that I think we're good at. We're good at helping founders think about how do you get, go from zero to one and how do you succeed in the pre scale era before you scale. Uh, how do you go to market? You just like how do you think about it from a network capitalist community building perspective? But what the some of the crypto specialists are really good at is things like how do you avoid the possibility of getting forked, or how do you you know just things that can just screw everything up, but that where you have to have a lot of specific knowledge and have to have gone down sort of the idea maze of a lot of corner cases. And so uh, I I like to work with with folks who are crypto native. Partly just so I'm not getting myself in a project where I just yeah. don't know what I'm doing. But part of it is uh, to make sure that we can partner in the right ways and share the work and the load and helping the founder. Yeah. One thing, Mike, I'm curious to get your assessment on is you've been so rigorous and have invented some of the playbooks on how VCs think about portfolio construction, how they think about valuation, how they think about fund size, how they think about really you know VC strategy, particularly at the, at the seed stage. How does that translate or how is that totally different when you think about crypto funds? Yeah, well, I think it's for the most part quite similar. It, it really depends on whether you think it's valid for a venture firm to own Bitcoin. Because like one one strategy you could take is kind of what, what we sometimes call, and by the way, we're not doing this because we've decided that our LPs could buy Bitcoin if they want to. But if it was like my own money, say, you might say, okay, I'm going to buy a bunch of Bitcoin. And I'm going to look at other crypto assets through the lens of the opportunity cost of selling Bitcoin to get it. And so, uh, and that's very different, right? So the way venture works is you start with a fund and you, you, you start from zero and you do additive investing. Whereas with crypto, you could argue that you should, you should buy whatever you think is the most valuable assets that your LPs can't get in the free market. And then work backwards, trading into the new ideas based on the opportunity cost of not having what you originally had. So, so I get interested in that. But fundamentally, I think that you know our business is hard, but it's not complicated. It's invest in things that are going to more than return our fund and that are going to have breakout success via power law. And it's just you know the pro the tricky part about being a crypto entrepreneur is like not only do you have to go from zero to one, but sometimes you have to be a public company. It's like you have to be public company going from zero to one, 
not controlling your source code. Not, you know, it's just like the, the degrees of complexity are just insane. And so like it's it, the, the stuff I think a lot about is just how can we be helpful to those founders who just have lots of degrees of freedom, but also, you know, on some way, level, it's constraining to have that that much going on. And are we going to have a return, Alok, you think, to the uh, to the ICO as a novel funding mechanism or has that had its day in the sun and standard venture? I think that shape of it is probably done. I think that the novel capital formation is something that's really core to crypto and we'll see continued iterations on that that emerge in different ways. This is actually a place where uh, looking to some of the Asian crypto projects is pretty interesting due to a combination of kind of the aggression of the entrepreneurs over there and also uh, more lax regulatory environments. They've already pioneered different models for token launches and token financings uh, that we haven't been able to try here. Terms like initial fork offerings, initial exchange offerings are things that, that happen with regularity over there, but we haven't had a single one. And so uh, the short of it is I, I, that same nature of an ICO, we've, we've learned about what works, what doesn't work. And so those will be incorporated, but, but capital formation is part of what's special here. Right. And, what's, and what, one of the things that's special about it is broadening economic incentives and aligning incentives across a broader uh, user base or constituency. And one of the things people are talking about with the rise of Lambda School is, is income share agreements. Um, and their example, you know, that's sort of the, uh, the education example where you can go to you know, school for free up front and then pay a percentage of, of your revenues. But then there are, you know, more sort of clever examples of could I, you know, get Mike on my board of directors and pay him a percentage of my my revenues? Could everyone have a personal board of direction uh, directors? Or uh, if I go to, you know, let's say, look, we went to school together and we pool or we're about to found a company and we, us to get five other founders, then we, you know, take 1% of each percentage of revenues and could uh, Colin buy an index of that? Or can I, you know, we don't want to get into shorting, but how do you guys sort of think about income share agreements, personal tokens, incentive alignment in that way? What use cases are you excited about? Do you think it's overblown? I think skin in the game is really powerful. And there's a if you think of debt versus equity as financing models, and there's a there's a power of alignment that I think is really important. And and I, I think skin in the game is kind of is is a deep part of of what makes crypto interesting because it's about just aligning stakeholders together in a way that's never been done before. I don't know if we're going to be ICOing people yet, but it's one of these things where, where, you, where you look and you see existence proofs of it that at least hinted in that direction. And it makes you believe that, that maybe one day, one of the benchmark founders, uh, Dave Byrne, uh, he, had a, he had a company that was uh, IPOing athletes. Uh, I remember uh, that. Whatever and- happened to it? I'm not sure, but but Vernon Davis IPO'd, and uh, I, it was an interesting model. It obviously is not pervasive yet, but whenever you see kind of those one-offs, uh, it makes you believe that it's going to become more powerful once you get the timing and the technique right. Yeah, and I, the 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 thing that I get really interested in is this idea of when you when you really do shift financial transaction completely into the world of bits, you can just do a lot of counterintuitive things. Like imagine. Uh, you need to get downtown and you get in a car, maybe it's an autonomous car and you have a bunch of buttons and each button has a different cost and the cheaper buttons let you take the more trafficked route or the the slower route. And it's like, if you want to go the fastest way to the center of town, they'll charge a market clearing price so that you can get there fast and not as many cars will be there. And, and just this idea of a world where, okay, that's a token and maybe the city issued that token. And it's like, I don't, I don't really have to become an expert in the dynamics of that token. I just have to know what my preferences are. 
and and the algorithms handle it for me. I think that kind of stuff is really interesting. And so, you know, in a world like that, you you could buy low and sell high on, you know, person's ability to generate income. And since since all of it'll be in a cryptographic bit-based world, you'll be able to validate that you're getting X percent of the person's future upside. You know, you'll have a smart contract that's enforceable. And so I just think that once once you have trust for that kind of things, you can have all kinds of super interesting derivatives that have a financial component, but that actually transact in what just feels like real world activity, you know, like driving your car downtown kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's the the hyper financialization of everything is kind of one possible future for this. Prediction markets are are a way to kind of tease at that. For example, uh, right now it's it's illegal to create a synthetic on a U.S. stock, so I couldn't create a crypto derivative on the Facebook share itself. But I could create a prediction market for their MAU growth next month, and we're starting to see platforms emerge for prediction markets at scale. Um, and you can kind of create markets on anything that you can quantify and kind of report the truth on. Yeah, or you know, in in the future, I may not have to buy insurance because I can buy something on a prediction market to hedge. You know, I'm a farmer somewhere and I'm afraid that the weather is going to be bad and screw up my crops. Well, I can I can hedge my position by buying a prediction that goes the other way. And so, you know, there's just, I, and then I don't even need an insurance company, right? I just, I just do it on the prediction market. So I think there's just a lot of really interesting things that could come about from this. Yeah. Why don't you think prediction markets have, have taken off yet? You mean as architected previously in the or centralized guess, form? Oh, no. I mean, right now, I guess Augur, et cetera. It, I mean, it's early. Augur's only been live for a few months now. Um, and, and we're still working out the kinks there. Uh, but I think that's actually one of the companies that I work closely with is, is building kind of a Coinbase like experience on top of the Augur protocol. Yeah, which one's that? It's called Veil. Okay. Oh, yeah. Those guys are good. Smart yeah. guys. And so uh, we're, we're teasing at it right now. I think we can use these things. Augur works. Truth gets reported. Markets resolve. There are some rough edges around it, but we're scratching the surface. For example, Veil last week launched that you can uh, user-generated markets now are possible, where you can create anything you want, spin up a market, set a take rate on it, and then attract an audience to it to try and build both sides of it. I think that's something that you couldn't do before. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I remember when I was in business school, this was before the Mosaic browser. My roommate, Tony Salah, was uh, interested in learning how to play the guitar better and to play REM tunes. And so he went on this thing called the Internet Gateway, and we, we were trying to find REM tunes, you know, that he could use to learn them on his guitar. And, you know, it just took hours, right, to find these tunes. And, and you know, it's just nowadays you'd think that's trivially easy. And so um, I think prediction markets might be like that, where it's, seen, it's super hard now. It's just hard to even be able to trade cryptocurrencies at all. It's hard to have a wallet. It's hard to store it. I mean, it's just everything is hard before you even get to the point of – engaging in prediction markets. But, but you know, there could be a breakthrough that's similar to the Mo- Mosaic browser that all of a sudden all the light bulbs go on. It gets easy. Yeah. You know, look, if it's if it's not going to be scalability or that that's the biggest bottleneck or that's going to take us forward, what do you think is the sort of uh, big milestone that, that, that we need to hit in order for, to get a significant step function in, in usability? Is it, is it going to be ISAs? Is it going to be DAOs? Is it going to be prediction markets? Is it, like, what do you think it's, it's going to take for, for there to be a step function in, in adoption and excitement or something totally different. Like, yeah. So I, I'm, 
I don't know if there's kind of the there's this one gating factor, and once we solve it, it's going to be glorious. I think it'll be just a bunch of things slightly improving in their own ways over time. People string them together in, in different ways, and and creating new use cases. Uh, it, it's going to be more gradual in, in my mind than than people think. People always used to ask me, oh, so like, uh, you know, when's my grandma going to be using crypto? And I'm like, when's your grandma using anything that's that's like an early adopting thing? It's that's the wrong question. Uh, I think I'm I'm perfectly comfortable kind of marinating in, in in kind of crypto native land, stringing together our tiny finance protocols, collateralizing one contract with another, prediction markets getting kind of tens of millions in volume, and and just watching what happens because I I think it'll we'll find things that are unexpected. Yeah, yeah, and I'm also curious about. What will currencies look like ten years from now, like or twenty years from now? Will we have less than ten that matter, and one of them's Bitcoin? You know, so like right now, you have different standards for like how you plug in to a, a socket, right? At different countries, but you don't have a hundred of them. And are we going to be in a world where someday it's kind of like that for currency? Like countries that have currency that's too volatile or subscale will just say screw it. I just, I shouldn't be in the business of even doing this. Let's just have, let's just say Bitcoin, or maybe they don't even have a choice in the matter. Maybe their citizens as customers of money just say Bitcoin's less volatile than this currency. Therefore I take my money business to Bitcoin. So I think it's really interesting to think about a world where there's way fewer currencies. Bitcoin's one of them and customers of money throughout the world decide to hedge their money with their, with their own currency and some Bitcoin. Yeah, it's almost Bitcoin. Bitcoin goes and it just kind of eats weaker money as it goes up. And kind of the final boss for Bitcoin is: Does it ever become a flight to safety asset in 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 the midst of global financial chaos? Yeah, and to, and to me, that is the, the the most bullish case for Bitcoin is actually not what it does to the other crypto networks, the other cryptocurrencies. It's what it would do to the fiat currencies that already exist. And, and what market share of fiat spend might it get in the future? And I, as long as governments are acting the way they are, I think the, the chances are pretty good that it could be pretty high. Right. It's interesting. You know, Seeb Qureshi, you know, uh, Metastable formerly had this post. Uh, I think the question was, if Bitcoin is such a threat to governments, why aren't governments more actively trying to, to prevent it? And is it possible that it's actually a boon to government power in some way? How do you guys sort of read that? I think it is a boon to governments, but it's counterintuitive as to the reasons why. I think that right now we have a we we have a flaw sort of externality in the way governments uh, handle money because they don't get punished by their citizenry for handling it irresponsibly. And in a world where now the government has to compete for money business with Bitcoin and others. I think that the government will be forced to be more responsible in their stewardship of money. And that will actually be good for governments, not bad for governments. I think most people in the government, if you took them behind closed doors, really do kind of worry that we're spending out of control. But the problem is you can't get elected, or at least you don't get thrown out of office for not caring about spending. And so what do we do? We just keep spending. We keep jacking the money supply. You know, we're, if people if people understood how badly our money is being treated in society, they'd be in the streets right now. I think one thing that's changed kind of today versus a year ago, two years ago, there was one set of beliefs that that really crypto getting adopted at an insane uptake rate 
uh, it would be the same effect as Uber growing so fast before governments knew how to rationalize it. Uh, and it led to this kind of escape velocity that really upended the whole system. Uh, and then we kind of reacted in the aftermath. There were some people that felt that crypto and Bitcoin could do that. Uh, it would gain adoption so fast before governments could wrap their hands around it and it would escape and take us into this new reality. But I think turns out that a lot of the governments got in front of it pretty quickly. And so now uh, that view is kind of tempered by, okay, we're not going to be able to do this kind of completely like in the blind spot of a regulator. Um, and so it's really understanding where are, the re- where are the best places to do it, what are the right nuance that you need in order to break out. And so we're just kind of in a world where, uh, where we have to deal with both governments and, and crypto kind of intertwined. And, and it's kind of interesting because there's a little bit of a myth of prior capitalism, which is we don't need the stinking government, right? But but actually, you know, the train, the, the Transcontinental Railroad couldn't have happened without right away access provided by the government and lands for the tracks. And you know, the internet was a DARPA research project, and so actually, what we find is that most of the really great breakthroughs, government is a partner with business, and they're working together with a common purpose. And if if anything, I'd like to see the government be more decisive in some of these areas because I think that part of how you get a fast build out of these technologies is when people understand what the rules are and what what they get in trouble for doing versus not. And right now, I think if you're building a crypto network, it's not completely clear what you're allowed to do. So you do, you, you just do less. Yeah, even in, in, in the internet, I think what's also under understated is the degree to which Silicon Valley played a role in 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 helping policy get made. John Doerr spent a ton of time in Washington, and if you read the old books, you can you find anecdotes uh, where he was heavily influential in in a lot of the policy that actually allowed the internet to grow into what it became. And so that's something that that people who are excited about the space also need to to keep in mind. Yeah, and even before the internet, Frederick Terman at Stanford working with the government on technology contracts helped put a lot of technology on the map. And so I'd actually like to see a world where we tried to launch a website and we couldn't for healthcare, right? For, for Obamacare. And that's actually bad. That's bad for society, right? It's, it is much better for society if government helps accelerate and helps, um, you know, is it is in partnership with business rather than kind of trying to break companies up and being hostile to business. And by the way, do, uh, there is a belief that government can invest by some people that government can invest, you know, by nature in a long term way in which venture can't and thus was responsible for core elements of of the internet. Do you think that's overstated? I guess in terms of government's ability to contribute to innovation that it would be mostly private or well, I think most of the positive examples of government contributing have to do with research or. In involvement in projects where they're accelerating things and not interfering with things. And, and in general, I believe that when the government decides to intervene, there's almost no problem in business that government can't make worse when they intervene. And so, um, you know, most of these, most of the times when people talk about monopolies or financial crises or things like that, the real monopolies that exist in this world are all government formed. Uh, why, you know, why is healthcare and telecoms and a bunch of all this stuff so screwed up? A lot of it is because of government intervention when they went too far. But why do we have a lot of depressions and, uh, and pullbacks in the economy? A lot of it is because the Fed jacks with the money supply and has not sound lending practices as a result of that or borrowing. And so for the most part, I have heavily 
in favor of government doing things that can accelerate things that have a long time horizon. But I'm not a big fan of government saying to business, hey, I'm going to get in the middle of this and tell you how to run your company. I, I think that's almost always a bad thing. Yeah, the guy that wrote the book on this is Bill Janeway, and uh, the book is Capitalism in the Innovation Economy, um, and it, it's it's amazing. It kind of speaks to where where governments can sit in the value chain of, of innovation all the way from core research all the way down to products and businesses. But echoing Mike's point, it's governments are, are, are one actor that can actually take a, a long-term principle stance and, and kind of give people uh, – a foundation to work on problems uh, that don't need the fickleness of markets to affect the rate of progress. If you if you look around globally, it, China today feels like the government that actually has the will and the initiative to kind of do that. So if I'm a if I'm making a, a hot take on this, uh, maybe look for for some of the innovations coming out of, of Chinese government funded work uh, that could actually make their way into interesting tech products and businesses. What are podcasts for if not for hot takes? Yeah, well, the other the other place that I think could be interesting are these, for lack of a better word, like city state type of things, like Singapore or Dubai, because in those cases, governments can work with businesses just cut through the nonsense and make things happen. And so I could see even U.S. entrepreneurs deciding to launch products in those geographies that that, that there's just too much red tape here. Oh yeah, we, we're, I mean it's it's insane. I have seed stage companies that have Cayman subsidiaries that are requiring all of this international structuring. Um, and these are seed companies with, with three or four employees. And it's a problem you have to solve out the gate because you just need freedom to operate to even launch a product. Uh, and I mean, like I couldn't imagine like companies need to make those decisions so early in their lifetime. And you know, you imagine, like, let's say that you wanted to build a whole city that had only self-driving cars. It was tech forward from the ground up. I'm not sure it could be built here. Uh, uh, th- that bugs me, right? It, it bugs me that it would become some political hairball nightmare for whoever was trying to build this thing. And, you know, in the 19th century, Chicago went from like zero to a million people for all practical purposes within 20 years. And so we were building things from the ground up that assumed a new world. Uh, and, and I think we need to get back to that. And government can p- clearly play a role in that in a positive way. And do you think that, not to get too off the rails here, that it's sort of inevitable or, or, or is there is there a change possible here depending on who wins 2020 or, or other elements or is it hey we're we're on a path and likely not veering off that path i tend to be more optimistic than most about the anti-fragility of the u.s and so i think eventually we'll muddle our way through it but we're gonna we'll probably make a bunch of knuckle-headed bone-headed choices between now and then yeah perhaps already have <laughs> yeah well th- this is i think a lot of this is what's pushing a lot of the – I mean, the, the frontier is digital right now. And a lot of that is a byproduct of, of the real world being kind of staked out and, and, and a lot of just the, the pipes are gummed up. It, the, the other joke is that the, the boomers took all the, all the real real estate. So now the, the Bitcoin is real estate for millennials. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, yeah, boomers are getting a hard time these days, <laughs> man. Everybody's giving them, giving them grief. Yeah. Look, why don't you talk a little bit about mining and staking, like where, where you're excited there and what, what we can expect to see looking forward. So mining and staking, it's, it's a general class of activity where owners of a token in a network participate it and provide some work to it uh, that helps secure it, that adds some value to it, and that's a critical part of the overall infrastructure for it. 
often doing so, you earn a reward from the protocol. If you're mining, uh, you get a block reward. If you're staking, maybe there's a staking dividend that's paid out, something like that. And it's it's one of these emergent behaviors in crypto that that's native to these things that we haven't really seen an analog for. So a lot of people are trying to figure out what do we do with it? Who should be doing it? Is it investors? Is it projects? Uh, what role does it play? My view on it is that I think for networks of scale and value, it's a specialist activity. I think companies like Bitmain uh, have shown that that when there's enough proven economic value in a network, uh, you can build real scale businesses in providing that that infrastructure value. But I think what's interesting is on some of the earlier on some of the earlier stage networks, investors with the right technical ability and operational ability can actually do it as a form of value add for the projects. There are a lot of people that think that doing this is kind of the new model for for what a VC should be doing for crypto. I'm not I'm not so sure there, but I think certainly it's a form of value add that is that is distinctly crypto native that I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs deeply value. Yeah. So it's sort of too early to tell uh, or jury's still out on generalized mining as a trend or- No, I mean I, I think it's it's look it's a it's a core function of of participants in a crypto network. Um, there's no question that that will continue and there'll be more diversity of ways in which token holders interact with networks. There's, there's providing security for the ledger. There's participation in, in governance or all sorts of things that are being pioneered there. And that's here to stay. The broader question is who will be doing it at what moments in time for different projects, um, is where I think that that's what's interesting to watch. Yeah, there was a there's a, a blog post that came out the last couple of weeks. I don't know if y'all have seen it, uh, but it's Eugene Way, I believe, the status as a service. And I thought that was an incredibly insightful post because, you know, on some level, all of these networks have some type of proof of work and the network rewards you differently. The, the network rewards you for giving the network what it wants. And in the case of social networks, it rewards you in status, which is a different kind of currency. But when you look at it through that lens, it's it's really interesting to me to think about, okay, every network wants something and what's the what's the best way to give people an incentive to give the network what it wants? And then to, on some level, the people who who do that work and prove the work that they do, they're the, they're the equivalent of the miners of, of that platform. Yeah. Perhaps in closing, what's uh, what are some of the other big questions or big forks in the road that we're going to... How we're, we're going to get answers to in the next few years that you think are going to be sort of decisive points for where we go as an ecosystem or, or what wins? What are sort of the, the big questions yet to, uh, yet to prove? That's a hard question. I think to me, something that feels inevitable, but we haven't quite cracked the code on yet, is this mix between user-generated content and crypto and tokens. Uh, we've seen kind of early versions that actually show like an initial spark or a sign of life, but but they weren't quite it. Mike brought up Twitter earlier. Twitter is a protocol. It's a short form communication protocol. And the problem with how the business was architected is that the protocol could only, they needed to ultimately monopolize access to it in order to support their business model. But to me, it, it feels inevitable that we're going to have a, a protocol that actually has kind of mass social appeal that is built on top of this set of primitives that that doesn't force it down that path of needing to ultimately extract value from its users rather than enabling it. And so that that to me is again one of like the grand challenges for crypto uh, is what does that look like? How do you get the incentives just right? How do you get the onboarding just right? That feels like something inevitable, but it's a I don't think we've quite seen the right version of it yet. 
Yeah, the the thing that I that preoccupies me a lot these days is I really do believe we're we're shifting from corporate capitalism, which is mass production, mass distribution, to network capitalism, which is mass computation, mass connectivity, and the, both of those, both computation and connectivity, improve at exponentially at exponential rates, which means they can bring abundance to everybody in the world. And the problem that I think of in my shoes as a techie is that I feel like we're doing a terrible job of making a positive case for the prosperity and abundance that these networks can bring to the world. We use terms like disruption and artificial intelligence and robots eating the jobs. And, you know, there's just a conceit that comes from the language of Silicon Valley right now that I think it's hard enough to convince people to change without having crummy words that make the change look even worse. And so uh, I think that it's incumbent on people in Silicon Valley and the technology business to do a much better job of making the pro tech forward case of how abundance can, can be brought forward. And because we're failing to do that, there's a lot of forces that are pushing back against the progress we could be making. And, and that's just going to be unfortunate because it's just going to prevent more and more people from entering the middle class and more and more people from succeeding and prospering. There's this great book, Commanding Heights, which sort of details the rise of capitalism and communism in different countries over the world. And one of the things it mentions is that, you know, people often died, uh, or certainly in Russia, with um, like the, Stalin on their lips, or like communism captured the imagination in ways that capitalism sometimes struggles to, even though it's so much better for, for the people, but it, it needs a rebranding or sometimes it's hard to intuitively feel in the same way that that socialism or communism really speaks to people. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that's all of us have a role to play in helping people understand that, you know, if you think about what is capitalism really, it's if I create something that you value, we both do better. The, the way the discussion is being framed right now is there's workers and owners and they have cross purposes and there's some zero sum game. And that's just completely categorically wrong. Um, ironically, the, the, that that's a better descriptor of the communist system. Yeah. But in the, but what ultimately happens is the owners become the people who have bureaucratic connections and have political pull. Yeah, framing is is so important. And and I also worry about the about the frame uh for kind of the anti-tech narrative and the way I mean, even to your point earlier about capitalism versus communism, there's a book The Best and the Brightest uh that was about some of the uh political leaders during the Vietnam War and one of one of the important takeaways from it is that it was actually an incorrect frame that led to a lot of the bad decision making, um, whereas the frame was capitalism versus communism, but actually the right frame was uh, imperialism versus non-imperialism. Getting a hold of the narrative, picking the right point of view is is something that's that's critical to to enabling progress. Yeah. This has been Mike Maples, Alok Vazadev. Guys, thank you for coming on the Venture Stories podcast. It's been a great episode. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 